Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing, happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Jackie. How are those allergies treating you? Oh, they're kicking my rear end. I have oh, to no. admit. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it might be turning into a cold or something like that. But um, yeah, after this, I actually have an open wide day. So I think I might go take a nap. And Ooh, I love a nap. <laughs> you know, <try laughs> warrior up. How about That's you? right. Oh, I'm doing good. Um, you know, it's getting the train is screaming toward the end of the semester. So, right. <laughs> so I'm getting to hear everyone's jury pieces with their pianist, their piano collaborators, which is really great. Like hearing everyone's work come together. Mm-hmm. Um and recitals are coming up and we're starting to look toward the end of the tunnel here, which is so great. <laughs> it is. It feels like it's going to be a sprint to the finish, at least on my end. But the, oh, yeah. there is a light at the end of this tunnel, which is always good. So you had a great idea for the dish this this week <laughs> um, uh, to do a listener mailbag. Mm-hmm. And... I just thought that was lovely because I love interacting with all of you beautiful people who listen to us scream cackle into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> However often it is that you do that. <laughs> so here's a good one. How do you find happiness in music when you feel like you're going nowhere? Mm. Do you have any good thoughts about this? Um, Not really. Because when you feel like you're going nowhere, I feel like there's no way you can actually be happy about that. Um, So my recommendation for anyone struggling with that is therapy. You've got to go work it out with a therapist. You know, it's just such a depressing 
um, time of life, if you're in that time of life and our careers are cyclical. So, you know, it comes and goes and it manifests itself at different times and in different ways. And we have to find a way to work with it. I think I've spent a lot of time in therapy doing that and being okay with where you are right now, even though where you are right now is not necessarily where you want to be. And then how do you take little steps to get there? It's truly so hard. Yeah, for sure. I think I totally agree with all of that because there are a lot of layers to this, right? It can be like when you feel like you're not progressing as a player, when you feel like you're not progressing maybe in your career or in auditions. I, I'd love to know if this listener kind of where they're coming from with this, but um, I think it always helps to, yeah, remind ourselves that one, there are ebbs and flows. There are times of feast and there are times of famine and nothing is permanent. Um, but also we are more than the music we make. Thousand percent. I think sometimes as musicians, we make music our identity or we make, you know, the bassoon or the oboe our identity and we, um, the things we accomplish or uh, achieve on our instruments become really embedded in our sense of self. And that is a knife that can cut both ways if we're not careful. And so I would urge this listener to remember that they are a whole person. In addition to being a double read player or musician, they are, you know, a someone's child or someone's friend or someone's teacher or, you know, a really great video game player or that they love reading books or whatever it is. Like we have more, we have to have more to our concept of self than just music. And maybe, you know, those other parts of yourself need a little bit of investment if music either isn't giving you back what you're looking for or if it's just not making you feel good to think about where the kind of the state of affairs are musically, you know, uh, maybe turn that attention elsewhere and, and be patient and kind with yourself. Of course, nothing lasts forever. This too shall pass. Um, great segue to self-care tips. Mm. I mean, self-care is something I've actually kind of been struggling with a little bit lately. I've wondered if that's what brought on this kind of not feeling my best <laughs> because there are times when, um, you know, there, there's just stuff on the list and it, the dates by which it has to be done are coming fast and furious and just pragmatically, it kind of is what it is and there's, there's not a ton of downtime. So... I guess my best self-care tip is kind of really being honest with oneself about what has to be done now slash today and what can wait. Um, like for example, yesterday, um, I had, I was kind of stressing because I have a performance of a certain group of repertoire on Friday and then a performance of a certain group of repertoire, like two and a half weeks later. And obviously it all should be getting my attention. But I was like, oh, I feel like I'm kind of trying to do too much all at once. And I looked at the calendar and reminded myself there's like nine whole days between mm -hmm. after my performance on Friday and when I need to have the other stuff ready to go. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can turn your attention to the Friday stuff exclusively now. That's perfectly fine. And all of a sudden, I actually said out loud, Jackie, give yourself some grace. <laughs> and all of a sudden I went, ooh, my repertoire just cut in half. 
And I didn't feel like I had to practice like seven hours that day to get through it all. And I'm just going to let those other pieces wait. And Saturday, I'll pick them up again. And, and that's okay. So maybe like being honest with yourself about, you know, what really has to be done now and what you can give yourself a little bit of grace on. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, I'm a huge fan of that strategy. <laughs> I feel like uh, the longer I'm in a professional role in music, the more I'm like, well, I'll learn that tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember Ben Trelio telling me you never learn music as quickly as when you're a professional. And I just right. thought he was like, it was like, you think you don't have time now when you're a student, like when you're a professional, you really don't have time. And I remember just thinking like, oh, sure. You just don't remember what it's like. And it's like, no, you, you got to learn stuff really quickly. Yeah. And I um, have gotten a lot more comfortable trusting that when that performance switch flips on, I can do it and I can do it without making a mistake, or at least I can do it without making a really embarrassing mistake. <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, I have to go to bed at a reasonable time. Mm -hmm. Like I just, 11 p.m. is too late for me to I've always been that way. Were you ever one of those people in school who would like stay at the music building till 2 a.m. practicing? Yes. Really? I never was. But I remember kind of like looking at those people and being like, oh, that's kind of like a, there's a fun intensity to that. But I've never been that person. I used to be. And now... If it's like 1030, I'm just like, it is so far past. (laughs) I can't even live. So, and part of uh, self-care for me also has been in getting uh, control over my Mm self-talk and allowing myself to be more positive. As you know, I am uh, a catastrophizer. (laughs) (laughs) That's your superhero name. That's right. The catastrophizer. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that's my tendency. Like, I always go to the worst possible scenario first. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, just recognizing that that, although it could happen, the chances of that happening are pretty slim. So like acknowledging like, yes, my fear is valid, but also again, trusting that my um, growth and my preparation and my musicianship can carry me over the threshold. Yeah, for sure. Kind of related. Someone asked us about tips for staying motivated. These are all kind of comparable, but do you have anything that gives you that extra little bit of gas when you feel like your tank is empty? Um, well, having concrete things to be practicing for like clear goals clear goals yeah Yeah. like if you're out of school and you're not practicing maybe schedule a recital at a library or at a church or something that will give you a deadline to be practicing Mm -hmm. for or you know sign up for an audition or you know if you're teaching privately put together a studio recital for you and your students that you also have to perform on so that it you know, gives you something concrete because it's so easy, but also luxurious to not have that deadline (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just be like, oh, there's no pressure. I don't have to. So I won't. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I'm probably one of the few weirdos. I know not everyone is like this, but I actually really get inspired by my colleagues and other bassoonists. Um, it doesn't actually tickle my competitive bone. Like I watch someone rock out on the bassoon and I'm like, that's so awesome. I want to practice for 10 hours. And <laughs> so uh, sometimes I'll even just like seek out other bassoonists on the internet. Like Morgan Davison obviously has this great practice Instagram yeah. or the Sophie Derveaux. Oh my gosh. And she's like conducting the orchestra and like playing from the podium. Have you seen her? What is it? Her new album cover with the bassoon on the stand and she's dangling the baton from her hand <laughs> it's just like how she can do it all like come on and that's really inspiring to me so uh yeah sometimes I look to look at my peers just rocking out and killing it and then I'm like oh yeah what we do is actually super fun and maybe I'll go practice now I don't know <laughs> Okay, so um, a very special question we got in our call for questions was from one of my students who asked, who is my favorite student? And I'm very happy to disclose that my favorite student is absolutely <laughs> It has always been It always will be oh. Question answered. <laughs> you know, I, that's what I thought you would say. Oh, I think we can end with maybe some like rapid fire. Um, the ones we didn't get to. Do you have any double read ensembles that you like super love? Uh, Queen of Sheba. Uh, Mark Vallon has a fantastic double read choir arrangement of themes from Carmen. That's really fun. Oh, nice. Dream piece you want to steal from another instrument. Any Brahms clarinet sonatas. Yeah, I I don't actually want to steal this, but my answer is Quartet for the End of Time. Our friend Corey just played Quartet for the End of Time, Aww. and I like uh, was mourning how I'll never get to play it. But for the record, I'm not advocating it being played on bassoon. I guess I'm just advocating <laughs> that I should have been a clarinet player. <laughs> and uh, last, how about a tip for video recording an audition? Um, don't mess up. <laughs> <laughs> I would say don't like do a whole session and only then like check how it looks like make sure that <laughs> like I did especially in the high pandemic when like we were doing all these video recordings and it was like uh it felt like such a production I'd like do something and be like oh that was a good take and watch and, like half my head would be out of the frame or oh, something God. like yeah take the time to make sure your setup is actually right because if the take is good or I remember once I had a take and the camera was crooked and so the whole frame was diagonal it looked like i was like sliding down the mountain <laughs> as i play she'll so. be sliding down the mountain when she slides <laughs> <laughs> hey oboists have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or english horn Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. 
Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are delighted to be talking to Sarah Jeffrey, Principal Oboe of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Welcome to Double Reed Dish. Thanks so much for having me, guys. We always like to get to know our guests by hearing how they began their journey on their instrument. So tell us the story of how you came to the oboe. Sure. Well, um, probably like a lot of other oboe players, I came from a different instrument. So um, I started, I have a very musical family, and I started on violin and on piano when I was quite young, three three and four years old. Um, and, you know, I love the piano. I still love the piano, and the violin just didn't have my name on it. It was never going to, it was never going to be me. And I played it for quite a long time until... After years of begging my parents to um, let me quit, uh, my dad, who's a wind ensemble conductor, finally said, you know, you'd be a good oboe player. So if you want to quit the violin, why don't you pick up the oboe, um, give it a shot. And so I did. And, you know, it's never easy to be to start the oboe. It just doesn't sound good, especially after years on another instrument. But, um, you know, then you're you're the one that the band conductors always like. Sounds great, even if it doesn't, you know, just because they're desperate <laughs> they just, to keep you. They don't and want you to quit, exactly. They don't want you to quit. So, um, yeah, and then I just, you know, it, it was my voice, and it's actually something I encourage um, all people to to think about, um, you know, my kids, which is, you know, that you may have a voice on something that's not the one that you're playing on, and that kind of goes with everything in life, you know? It's like you might just have to keep searching. How did you get from sounding like a beginner on the oboe to choosing the oboe as your career? <laughs> well, uh, let's see, that's a long path. But, uh, you know, private lessons. So for everyone who's listening, um, I know that you have a huge following with this podcast. <laughs> so um, but the especially the, the younger, um, the high school uh, students, you know, make sure you have a great private teacher who supplies you with reads, you know, that's really what it is. And uh, it's just feeling like you have, um, you know, an edge to your voice, like to, and, and by edge, I don't mean sound quality. I mean, like a <laughs> leg up, you know, that you can really like, um, do stuff that you want to do. And that means having good reads. So either ordering reads that are have a reputable um, quality or a private teacher. So and dreams, you guys. It's dreams. You go find your dreams. Just have dreams and go for them. Yeah, you came from a musical family. So was that something that was expected of you, that you would go into music professionally? Oh, definitely not. Um, yeah, and um, I would say now, um, my husband is a the third horn player in the Toronto Symphony. And, um, you know, we don't really want our kids to go into music, mostly because we know how hard it is, um, how taxing it is on your self-confidence and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But 
you, I think as a parent, you just want your kids to do what they love. You want to find a passion and go for it. And you don't want to be stuck doing something that, like I was saying, doesn't have your voice, isn't really who you are. Um, and so growing up, you know, my parents started us on instruments, like I said, um, but, um, and we stuck to it. We always had teachers. And so we always had paths to follow, which I think is also important, you know, to have a plan of, you know, little recitals that keep you going or little, little bits of motivation, um, bribery. <laughs> no, it's such a huge thing, especially now as an adult. Um, but you know, I think, um, I think the philosophy with my parents was just, um, to have that part of your brain exercised. And I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be an architect. Um, when I was really young, I wanted to be a grocery store clerk because (laughs) I loved all things, cash registers and monopoly and all that kind of stuff. But as, um, you know, uh, a middle schooler and a high school student, I really, I, I really loved architecture and I still do. Um, but I, I realized I had something to offer and in music, um, that a lot of my peers in school didn't. And I think it's just cause it was, it, it, you know, it was part of who I was. And so I decided to pursue that and, you know, here I am. So, once you decided to pursue it, can you talk us through like your training and educational journey post high school and, um, yeah, the kind of thought process that went into that selecting where you were going to pursue these next steps professionally? Sure. Um, so, uh, I went to the university of Toronto. I grew up in Toronto, um, and we moved, um, to London, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto, um, for my middle school and high school years. And, um, my brother who plays trumpet, um, now with the Winnipeg symphony had gotten into the Interlochen arts Academy and, um, uh, just life circumstances. I wasn't able to go the year. I mean, you're younger than him. So, uh, he went from there to Curtis And, uh, I was super desperate to go and couldn't. So I came back to Toronto, um, to finish high school because there's the Toronto Symphony Youth Orchestra, which is a phenomenal orchestra, great training orchestra under the umbrella of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And, um, so I did that program and I met my future husband. We've been dating since we were teenagers, crazy. And, um, yeah. And so I stayed at the University of Toronto because, you know, I got some really good advice, which I think is good for um, all students to hear, but um, especially Canadians um, or, you know, let's just say students that aren't in America, uh, which is, you know, filled with amazing schools and everything, is that, you know, the fundamentals that you learn, um, you can get anywhere, you know, and so it's really the, it's the theory, it's the ear training, it's the, 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 great professors that, you know, encourage you along the way with the, um, constructive criticism and all that kind of stuff. It's really important to sort of accept that where it is and where you are. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's great schools all over the place, but I think it's really important to, um, be happy where you are and to learn as much where you are and to find that positivity as, you know, your foundation and your fundamentals. So, um, I went to the university of Toronto and then for my undergrad and for my grad degree, I went to the new England conservatory and, um, 
I learned so much going to that school. I mean, just even the, um, I secretly don't tell anyone. I chose the school for the practice rooms with the windows. Oh my gosh. Like just the most amazing, you know, I'm from downtown Toronto where like the, the old houses, right? Oh yeah. And so like those windows that open up huge and like just the air coming in and the oxygen and while you're practicing, you know, and uh, I just really appreciated the um, the culture there of, you know, waking up early and getting into your practice room at 7 a.m. and just doing your bit to feed your own practice and your own um, self-growth was huge for me. Mm-hmm. So not to mention my fabulous teacher, who uh, Laura Albeck. She was just incredible. So pairing those two things together, I really, I grew as a person tremendously. I was at BU when Laura was uh, still alive. And so I got a couple coachings with her. I didn't know her well, but she was fabulous musician and yeah, just wonderful. Yeah. And so great at tapping into each individual student and um, bringing out the best of them with humor and lightness, but also grit and determination. She was just phenomenal. I'm so grateful to have Mm. had the time with her. So. I love your point about not beating yourself up if you don't get into, you know, your number one undergraduate, like, I must go here. And then, you know, you have to maybe in your young mind settle for a different school, like really accepting where you are at that point and getting the most out of it and having a growth mindset through that. I think that's super important. That's something that I also had to do. younger student. And I don't think I did it with as much grace as you did. So that's really wonderful. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that I did it with grace either. And that's okay too. (laughs) I think that's like you brought up growth mindset and a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset is everything in every aspect of your life. And I feel that looking back, you know, my brother and I would have these conversations. He was at Curtis and I was at U of T and he would say, Oh, you're so lucky you're at U of T because you know, um, everyone's so nice there and all this stuff. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But, um, You know, it's just, I think there's something to really, um, the quicker, this is something I, I talk about a lot when, when I'm, um, talking about performance anxiety, which is that the quicker you can acknowledge your feelings, the quicker you can acknowledge where you are and what your needs are, the quicker your needs can be matched and, um, met and developed. Right. And so that, that was the, I think that's the big thing for undergrad for everybody is that, um, you know, it's acknowledging your strengths and acknowledging your challenges. And what are the solutions for you for your challenges? Not your best friend, not your favorite performer, not the person who sits first chair for you. And how do we get your challenges met? Yeah. And that kind of acknowledges the toxicity of the word should. Mm-hmm. I should be able to do this. I, why can't I do that? And like, just, I don't know. I, I would always spiral around that. Like, well, I should be able to, why can't I, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. hundred mm-hmm. percent. The other important point that I think we need to acknowledge is um, the compatibility between oboe and horn, because my wife <laughs> is also a horn player. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everything, you know? <laughs> So how many times between the two of you have you played that Reinecke trio? Well, so many. So many. 
so many that we, you know, I'm sure you have too, Galiba. We commissioned a couple pieces. Yeah. So we exchange the, you know. Um, and it's a beautiful piece to play and coach and teach. And, um, so. Okay, Jackie, now you can ask your question. Can we hear about um, embarking on your professional journey and how you got to the Toronto Symphony? Um, but I might also like to hear, did you want to go back to Canada and was that a priority or was it just kind of serendipity that your hometown orchestra had this fantastic opening or um by hometown I don't mean like Toronto's like I know it's a gigantic orchestra but like <laughs> that it's where you're from you know and it, I'm sure it had that special thing so that's a really good question and I I I, I really like to think that my uh journey there is very normal <laughs> everything I've I've tried to do in my life always points me back to, you know, being humble and um, accepting who I am and where I am. So I, when I graduated from um, NEC and um, my husband was playing at the time in the Winnipeg Symphony. So I, you know, for love, you, well, he was my boyfriend at the time, but you, you move and practice because what else are you going to do? Because you need to practice. Let's face it. You need to practice. So I moved to Winnipeg to be with him. And only a month into being there, I won my first job, which was with the uh, Windsor Symphony, which is um, just on the other side of the river from Detroit. And um, boy, that was just such a gift to me right away to win that job. I had no idea what I was doing um, when I got there to sit in a principal elbow chair and, um, I had already taken at that point, I think that was my fifth audition, um, at that point, just in the short time between the end of my two year master's degree and the September of that year. So, um, you know, I learned a lot in those, those first five auditions. And I think what I had put together in those, those first five auditions was that, um, I needed to stop trying to be something else and to start you know, maybe just honing on this, honing in on the skills, um, that I knew, uh, made me, um, nice to listen to, let's put it that way. So in other words, um, not trying to force my way through excerpts too, um, quickly and, um, aggressively and instead trying to find a quality in my playing that, um, could allow me to actually play nicely and, and by nicely, I just mean like with um, ease mm. and um, um, beauty. So uh, I had that job for a little while and I kept taking auditions. And I think one of the uh, great benefits to um, my partnership with my husband is that um, Gabe is his name. He is a um, he is very motivated and very organized in his learning and his practicing. And so I got to kind of just um, be alongside his journey of learning and kind of use those skills in my own practicing and developing routines. And um, like I was saying, kind of acknowledging the challenges that I had in my playing that at the time I thought, you know, I was sort of maybe taught that, um, and not from my oboe teachers, but just from life that maybe uh, the things that you're not good at, you're just not good at. And it's mm -hmm. going to be hard for you to get better at them. 
And the truth is that's not, that's not the case at all because, um, in my agent stage now, I'm still learning with every practice session and every week that goes by, I feel like I just get better and better because of, um, maybe the wisdom of letting go in, in theory, but in practice really like narrowing in on the actual skill involved. So to keep going, um, after I was in the Windsor Symphony, then I won a job with the Quebec Symphony. Mm. And these are all Canadian orchestras. All of the other auditions that I'm mentioning um, were in the U.S. So uh, before I um, ended up with the Toronto Symphony job, I'm, I think that was my 28th audition or 29th mm. audition. So I took many, many auditions in the period of uh, five short mm. years um, and learned a lot with each one of them. And I think that's the point, is that if you can keep your the intensity about growing and about learning and about what you're coming home with then you're going to do you're going to do okay <laughs> in no matter what you do because um because that's what they are yes they're huge financial investments but in the end um you know there's kind of an end date to to people auditioning people get frustrated and they sort of mm -hmm fall off the audition bandwagon. And I, I think my point, my theory was that if I could just stay positive and just look forward to having a margarita after the audition and, <laughs> and then go home and, you know, cry it out a little bit and journal my head off and figure out what I could do better for the next one, then I was probably going to end up with a chair at some point in some orchestra. And really I auditioned for principal and second and English horn and associate and everywhere and everything. And I just tried to hone in on what I knew um, was the voice that I wanted to get across to a committee that would match, you know, who I am. Mm -hmm. yeah. So from Quebec, um, I took a one year stint in Kitchener, uh, which is just an hour outside of Toronto because, um, my husband had just got a job in Kitchener and he was coming from Winnipeg to Kitchener and then he got Toronto and I went to Kitchener and then, oh my gosh, I won the job in Toronto and we had been long distance for eight long years. Oh my God. It was just a thing, you know, and we both got jobs in our hometown orchestra. We were both in the TSYO, the youth orchestra, you know, it was a really a wonderful thing, but also, you know, it's just important to realize that your path is, um, it's long and it's curvy. Just do it. Just go there. Mm -hmm. I want to know about the day. Can you tell us about the day that, uh, that you won in Toronto? Sure. Except like most auditions, uh, it's, um, you know, there's, it's pretty rare these days that somebody gets hired, especially for a chair like that, for a principal elbow of a big orchestra, um, on the day. But so yeah, that was a pretty, pretty awkward, intense morning where you're taking the subway down there because, you know, he was in the orchestra. So I was staying at home, you know, to, to go down, take the subway. Anytime you can take a subway to an audition, do it. Um, and so, you know, at that point I had really realized that, um, I needed to get across the qualities that I knew I was the best at. And I don't mean in competition with other people. I mean that these are the qualities that I know I have to offer the world mm -hmm. in music. And the qualities that I'm still working on to this day 
you know, you just brush them under the rug a little bit. You know, you just try to tidy it up that day. Just keep it nice and tidy. So that means, you know, slowing things down a little bit, easing off the adrenaline rush a little bit, take the pedal off the gas a little bit. Um, just keep those in check. And I remember just um, getting to the final round, being shocked that I was in the final round, just like we all are. But instead of losing my bananas the way that everyone does when they get to the final round, which I had done previously 27 times, um, you know, you get to the finals and you're like, what? Whoa. I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know why. Well, you never get used yeah, to that. The same you know? thing, yeah. yeah, and it's something that I try to really coach my students now is like, you might get to the finals. So what happens when you do that? And let's talk about, so it's a part of your practice. And I just remember, you know, them asking for my favorite excerpts, one after another and giving it, just leaving everything on the floor of Roy Thompson Hall. Here you go, here it is. This is me, this is me. And there was one excerpt that I hadn't really um, made such a mess of as much in my life. It was the first page of Don Juan. And it, I just couldn't get it. And they asked for it again and again and again. And I just, for whatever reason, was falling off the train. And um, I still got offered a contract, you know? And I think that that's a huge, yeah. I think that's a huge lesson because you just don't give up and you refuse to snowball. So if it happens on one excerpt, just keep going and keep giving it and get those yes votes, get them. And so when I call, when they did offer me um, a trial, which then led to a contract, um, you know, I, I remember walking out of the, the stage door and calling my husband and just being like, oh my gosh, like if I have a trial, I know I can, I can win everybody over because it's, there's so much more to sitting in a chair than just playing the notes and hoping they like them, right? It's about who you are and it's about what you offer and how you relate to people. And those I knew were skills that I was going to do well with. Um, I feel like when you're sitting in a principal chair of a big orchestra, part of what makes you great is being able to hear other people's ideas and take them into your playing in a split second. And um, anyway, it all worked out. Can we ask you about preparation? So maybe this is for audition day or for the actual trial. How do you go about preparing? And is there an extra element when it's like, this is where I'm from, this is my, like, this job is special to me. Like, obviously, anytime we're going up for something, uh, we want to be successful. But there are also jobs that we have a personal connection to, like you have with TSO. Mm -hmm. And did that, did that change anything about this gig in retrospect? Well, I, th I think, um, you know, uh, in retrospect, if I look back at the time, um, I was trying to keep everything really simple in my mind. And um, I think part of that was, you know, don't try to be who you're not, just be who you are and be great. So, you know, everyone has the capabilities, um, everyone, absolutely everyone of being great, of being at their very best. The question is, how can you do that? And for me, it's keeping things um, clear and simple and um, with a very determined goal in mind. And so um, 
I think all of it was, you know, the stuff I've already um, said a lot <laughs> about, which is um, allowing yourself to be your authentic self and allowing the work, the preparation that you've put into it to take over. And so um, I knew that if I, um, and this goes for all the trials that I did. And because, you know, I think, well, actually, well, anyway, two out of four of those jobs I had trials for. And um, and let's face it, your probation is just one big giant trial. So it was it was literally like putting one foot in front of the other um, the whole time. If you can um, prepare to the best of your ability, and by preparing it means like doing the work <laughs> that um, I remember back then was very confusing to me. Get the score. Get the get everyone else's part. Get this. What does that mean? Get this. Like uh, so, I'd get the score and I'd open it and I, I think I was studying. I didn't know what I was studying. I think that's right. part of it, right? Is that a lot of this can be above. Um, what you've already taken in in your learning and i think a lot of it in your in your college degree or in your undergrad degree is it's really above your head and it takes time to absorb all that information and that's really what a grad degree is and then beyond that and so you know you take the score and you're trying to like take it all in you have no idea what you're doing so you know it's really just getting it to the point of it being rote learning but putting your own stamp on it like who you are not who your teacher is or who your mentors are or who you wish you could be, but just who you are and sticking to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's it. And then just taking literally step by step and not looking too far ahead, just what your task is in the moment, which is being great right then in that moment with all the preparation you have holding you up. It sounds like mindfulness, like mindful practicing, mindful performing. Well, isn't it all... Yeah. It's all the same, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we really, you have to be so attuned to the moment and who you are to be able to put that out there without the big cloud of fear over you. You know, it's so hard yeah. to do and um, so easy once you can kind of just remember your purpose. So. Yeah, and our art form exists in a moment, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. once, once we're done playing, it's not there anymore. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such an important perspective. Yeah. Was the ability to do that something that came to you organically or is it something that you had to cultivate actively? Oh, yeah. I think I think you cultivate it um, only just by acknowledging that it's something that every human needs. Um, I think organically as um, as a person, I'm a pretty lighthearted, optimistic person. So I always want whatever it is that I'm doing to um, to go as well as it can. I'm not particularly hard on myself, but um, I am about the result, right? And so I, you know, I did learn very early on that stress um, can actually be a giant block in front of you to doing your best. So somehow whatever it is for your stress management. And there are many, many different ways to look at that. It's going to be something that has to be managed in anything that you do in life, but definitely for the performing arts. Um, so for me, I did, I was doing yoga when I was um, just graduating from my master's degree. I, I took up running. My teacher, Laura Albeck, she made me run. 
It was really, really not comfortable and I hated it, but I was in Boston with the Boston Marathon. It was super inspiring. And so, and you know, and I re there was a lot of, there was some really important lessons in there, um, picking up yoga and running. Um, oxygen in your brain, sweating every day, so important, you know, just doing something to take care of your your body. And then to take care of your mind, you know, just that kind of release that you only get when somebody tells you to take a deep breath and then you do take a deep breath. And then all of a sudden there's a new perspective. It's just one breath, you know? So there was a lot there that I took into my um, um, audition preparation. So I ran before every single audition at the morning of every audition just to clear my head and um, get my body moving and get some oxygen into my brain. Um, you had briefly mentioned before uh, some commissioning that you've done, and I'd love to hear more about those. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I've com I could commission more. I, I can when I find space in my life. That's always something that I'm that I aspire to and also that I love when my colleagues um, bring new repertoire for us. Um, but yeah, there's a, we had a, a friend in university who is a composer here in Toronto or Canada anyway. Um, his name's Eric Ross. And he wrote this, um, we commit, instead of paying for a big giant wedding, we took, um, we had a wedding, but we took some of the money that we had set aside for that and commissioned this piece. And oh, that's called, adorable. Uh -huh. Well, it's, and it's not what you think when you listen to the piece. It's um, when we told people, oh, yeah, we, we commissioned some uh, a piece, you know, um, inspired by, you know, getting married. Um, it's not what you think. So it is intense and fiery and super cool and really difficult um, for both instruments and for the piano too, actually. But it's a oboe horn piano trio. Uh, it's called Chacon. You can check it out. It's on YouTube. And, Amazing. Um, it's really cool. Yeah. A lot of fun to play. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'd love to transition into um, some questions about teaching, but mm -hmm. first, maybe a bit of like a derpy question, but I, I still can't help but ask. So like now you're teaching where you went to school and you're playing in the TSO, like what was that like to step into that life? Like was it surreal or was it like so cool or all of the above? Like what was that moment like where it's like, oh, it's me? Yeah. Yeah. It's every day, you know, Jackie, that's what it is. It's every day. Um, it's every day I wake up, I'm like, whoa, I can't believe I'm doing this. So, you know, there's, I've been in the, in the TSO now 17 seasons and I still feel like I want to make, so my teacher was the previous principal oboe and I want to make him proud. And he comes to concerts all the time and he, oh. Oh, oh, and he sits in the first row of the choir loft and, you know, it's just, you know, I, I just want to make everybody um, feel like I'm so part of the team and I want this for everybody. And um, so going to teach is interesting because, um, you know, you walk into the building and you're right back there almost every time. So, uh <laughs> But I also teach at the Glenn Gould School, which is the Royal Conservatory across the way, but it's sort of a different um, 
one's a conservatory and and the other one's a university so they're they're really different and that's what I love I really love um, being in the mindset of the students that you're that you're with um, it's a really different thing so I love teaching. Um, I'm really passionate about being able to pass on any knowledge that you have um, to everyone else and and helping everyone understand that um, with the right foundations, in other words, with any foundations, um, you can do anything, but you have to be yourself first. You have to be true to who you are, which is not something that you really know who you are when you're in undergrad and um, in your master's degree. It takes time to kind of sit with it and develop, but at least acknowledging where to start and how to build on that is so huge and so important. And I love being a part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had the benefit of returning home for my job, you know, and uh, teaching where I'm from. And it's, I don't know if it would be for everybody uh, or like even everyone's preference or even if it is certainly not an option for everybody, but it adds for me like a specialness of like, you know, this is my home and these people are, this is my community and I'm in service to not just my art, which is enough, but to also be, you know, able to give back to this community that cultivated everything exactly. I've been able to become. It adds a, um, a specialness to my career um, that might be maybe kind of self-centered. I don't mean that in like a flippant way, but it would be all about me. And in this way, I'm able to make it about, you know, where I'm from and my community and it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's about special. being, I think with anyone in the performing arts, it's about being a part of the fabric of the community, right? Without mm -hmm. sounding too cliche. It's about like, this is where you came from. This is what inspired you and and helped you develop into your best self and being able to give that back um, in a way for everyone else is so special. You, mm -hmm. you just put it, you put it so beautifully. And community is really everything about what we do. Yeah. If we could go into the oboe nerd we uh, weeds for a moment. So fun. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go there. I would love to hear about your reads. What do you, yeah, like what's your, what's your setup? What do you look for in a read? How do you okay. teach reads? Well, asking um, for a friend. <laughs> asking for a friend. I have questions for you too later. Also asking for a friend, Miss Professor. Oh. So, um, yeah, I play on a very American setup. Um, and that's a question I get a lot about being a Canadian oboe player um, in Canada. Teaching in Canada is sort of like, what are the differences between the Canadian? Not really, right? So um, just putting that out there. So I play, um, I use a um, John Furillo, the Harvard double reed um, gouger. And um, I also have a, I have a lot of gougers, you guys. Oh my gosh. It's my dream yeah. to have well, like 20 gougers. I might be close to that. I don't know. You know, and it's, because uh, there, there are qualities that I love about each of them. They're like children. Oh my goodness. So um, yeah, I have 
uh, graphs that I've loved, you know, set up by John Simer that just beautifully um, set up and so easy and he's just amazing. And um, I have many um, HDR machines that I sort of keep in rotation um, just so I always have something great to work with that produces an easy read so I don't have to stress, you know, it's so... And then I... Um, if I stick with that for now, rather than telling you about all my gadgets, um, I uh, I try to use uh, John Frillo's a similar setup, you know, with little tweaks to um, for my own physical setup, really. Mm-hmm. But I use a, a Gilbert One shaper tip, um, a Mac Pfeiffer. There's some qualities in the Mac Pfeiffer that I just love, depending mm-hmm. on the repertoire. Um, Mac plus plus was always a favorite mm-hmm. of mine for sure. Um, and let's see what else. Um, I don't know. Staples, <laughs> like Glotin, Pizzoni, Ruby two plus, whatever, whatever kind of comes my way that, um, that I love, but there's something about, you know, that fine line between a shaper tip that's wide enough to project and, um, you know, feel really fulfilled with your, um, mm-hmm. your tone, but also your resonance, but then also not so big that you're not really paying attention to the trueness of your, um, high notes above the staff. Mm-hmm. So, you That's know, That's going to be I, a tricky balance because as a principal oboe of a major orchestra, you've got to project, mm-hmm. you know, but you, I mean, it's so much effort to fight the high register if your read is too big. So that's got to be a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, it's we don't have a particularly uh, friendly hall for the oboe. Mm. It's, um, you know, I hear, I, I listen to all of your podcasts, by the way. And, you know, I hear all of my, my friends and colleagues say, oh, I love my hall. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> One day, I might, I don't know, somebody like comes with a wrecking ball. To, or, anyway, so <laughs> won't go there. But, um yeah, and so it's it is tricky um, to find the right setup, and and most people play in a hall that it, there's a little bit of give and take. So I have to play narrow enough in the center of my tone that it projects and gets out there, um, but I also need to be able to play with ease where I am, and that's really the balance, right? Is being able to find the resonance where you are and know that it's getting out there because of the you're paying special attention to the core the inner core of your sound and the cushions around it and um yeah just taking the feedback however you can if it's microphones but that's another really important point for auditions right Mm. is that you're going from from hall to hall you know all the different um halls that i played in for auditions and really trying to hone in on how how you play and how you prepared and not responding not reacting to the environment that you're in at the moment is really mm-hmm. tricky and really important in your preparation in my you mean like not being thrown if the hall is a little more dry or a little more wet or exactly okay. yeah so one of the things i really uh try to help my students uh hone in on is you have to play to the absolute corners of the hall and fill the hall with all the beauty of tone and um, gestures that you can. But in that, um, 
it's right where you are. It's on, it's between you and the music stand and all the resonance that you've practiced in your practice room. Mm -hmm. So not kind of getting stuck in the practice room, just kind of like playing with a small sound, but practicing that resonance in your practice room. And then when you get to the hall, just stay right there. Just do what you did. Fill the hall with your gorgeous beauty, but, but don't try to push and respond to what's happening. That's a really great point. Can we hear about a favorite memory that you have of a past performance? So, yeah. Okay. Well, here's one. A few years ago um, was the first one and only time I got to play La Scala. And, um, sorry, La Scala di Seta by Rossini, not in the <laughs> hall in La Scala. Um, and, you know, I prepared backwards and forwards and up and down and side to side. Uh, I mean, I was beside myself in my preparation for that piece. I just wanted to do, I knew all of the students were going to be there and coming. And um, I wanted to do, I wanted to play Rossini like I had always wanted to. Um, and it's different than playing Italian Algiers or like some of those other things. So um, my teacher in Boston was like, she. I, there was one story that she told me where uh, she was doing odd uh, conductor auditions. So it must be resident conductor auditions for the Boston Symphony. And one of the pieces to try each conductor was La Scala. And she had to play it over and over and over again that day with all the different conductors who were scared to be conducting, you know, the Boston Symphony. So some of them were unbelievably fast and unbelievably, and you know, the the strings play it first and then she so she said she played it as fast as like 156 and as slow as, you know, 100 um, that day. And so I took that into my preparation and I was playing it at every tempo, double tongued, single tongued, like in every which way. And, you know, playing with the band, playing with the orchestra, everything is easier. Oh my gosh, you guys, everything is easier. (laughs) I don't know why that, you know, of course, tombo is like, so what a pleasure to play tombo with an orchestra rather than as an excerpt. Mm-hmm. It and, and the best way that any student can emulate that is just by, you know, of course, your teachers have all told you, just turn on the recording and play along. But really crank it, like have a party in the middle of tombo, like get in there, like swim, you know. Get in there. <laughs> and so La Scala was the same thing, you know, it was so light and fun and effortless and over in a flash over in a flash. So, you know, these are the little things that even after all these years, I really try to keep in perspective, um, you know, um, what a pleasure it is to do what I do. And it's such a privilege. That sounds really wonderful. And I'm wondering if there is perhaps the other side of a memory, maybe like a funny memory of something that has happened on stage or perhaps something embarrassing that will make us all feel better about ourselves. Well, for sure. <laughs> like there's the time in my, um, in my very first year, I didn't have probation and it's like every oboe player's worst nightmare where you can see the thread start to unravel and you're playing. No. It was Brahms one. Oh God. Yeah. And I, I saw it like, I don't know why I hadn't, I noticed they were a little bit, the ends of the, the thread at the bottom of right by the cork were fuzzy and, you know, I'd noticed it, but I didn't know. I, I was just too beside myself to like, you know, I just wanted to get out there and start to play. Just go. I just wanted to play. So we played the first movement and we're just taking a break to start the second movement. I took my read out of the instrument and just to like, 
um, moisten it a little bit and put it back in. And as I put it back in, all of the thread that had unwound then was pushed down and the, and this is the beginning of the second movement. So, you know, so I go to start and I'm like, just, you know, there's nothing you can do about this. You know, like I, ha- I always have a few backups on my thing, but I didn't want to change because I hadn't taken care of my business. Like I hadn't um, made sure that they were wet and tried them out in the first movement. I just was ready to go. And I just, it split second and I had like what, the, just that opening. So I chose to play the first solo on that read and then it went so well. And I was like, well, I don't really want to change reads and then have to come in on a high G sharp out of nowhere <laughs> on a dry read and then keep going. That's going to be terrible. So I'll keep going. And the thread kept going down and down and I was trying not to touch it and it was opening and though I was sure the blades were going to come apart. And so I went up to the high C sharp and came down and finished the solo. The clarinet took over and I pulled the reed out and the blades came off. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right? So, you know, at that point I had a second to kind of like just soak up a couple of the other reeds that I had out and, oh my gosh. But like, I sweat just thinking about that, but it's all, you know, those moments, right? I was getting anxiety. Like I felt my adrenaline coursing through my veins as you were telling that story. (laughs) Because you just don't notice. And you can get neurotic about checking, checking all the little details and stuff. And normally, uh, especially since moments like that, and there have been other moments like that, but um, not specifically like that with the read, but other moments where you didn't notice that something was out of adjustment. And then all of a sudden, nothing's coming out of your instrument and you're checking. And anyway... So that we're neurotic. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. I feel like we're neurotic because we've been taught to be that way because things like this happen. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and so, you know, it's a really good question. Like I don't, uh, I don't tell those stories very often because I feel like in a lot of ways they're just, it's just a fluke and it's sort of how you respond to it. It's sort of like just laughing it off and being like, it's just a moment. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. Like nobody died. It's okay. Yeah. That's true. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway. So the question that we love to end on is, uh, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Be yourself, but know yourself. Know your strengths and love your strengths and own your strengths. Also, understand your challenges and and be okay with your challenges and find solutions for your challenges. So this is the case for every musician you have ever heard of that has ever been a legend in the world. Um, We're human. We're all human. We're all the same. We have a different set of strengths and challenges. And it's so important to be okay with that and then to get to work and find solutions for your challenges. And there are different ways of coming at at every challenge. And there is a teacher out there who can help you um, embrace those challenges. And um, if you can do that and you can find the fun in in all of it, um, the fun in your fundamentals, as I tell my students, you know, It's, it's so important to have great fundamentals and great, a great foundation for your playing. And then, oh my gosh, you can let go and soar. And if you can stay true to that through all of it, through all the 
constructive criticism that sometimes doesn't feel great, but um, can be so empowering for your um, path, for your your learning experience. If you can stay true to all of that, you're going to do really well because people get bogged down. You know, they get bogged down in the things they can't do or the things they should be able to do or where they should be going to school or where they, you know, they should have a job by the time they're whatever X age. All None of that matters. What matters is that you're honing in on your craft, that you're constantly getting better at it and that you're finding your voice and really truly like zeroing in on what makes you, you. Sarah Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us for this hour on Double Read Dish. It was so inspiring and wonderful, and we can't thank you enough. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Oh, we hope you enjoyed that interview. That was lovely. Thank you for your questions. And um, don't forget to follow us on social media. Please rate and review. We do notice and it means so much to us when you take that time. Uh, check in with us on social media. We always love hearing from y'all. And on the next episode, Galit's going to tell you who's chatting with us. We spoke to Chris Weat. Professor Emeritus of Bassoon at Ohio State University. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. And take a nap.